Good morning. My sermon text for today is the second lesson assigned to us, namely St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, the second chapter, the first 13 verses. <clears throat> My sermon title for this morning is In Due Time. In Due Time. Won't you pray with me? Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you for the beauty of your creation, the gift of this fall day, a day that we have never seen before, an opportunity to love you, worship you in spirit and truth, and to serve our neighbor in need. We thank you for the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the joy which fills your house and your people even now. We thank you for the enthusiasm and the excitement you give us for your word and the sacrament of your supper. Speak to us now, Lord, for your servants are gathered and we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> My sermon text, like I said, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Sermon title for today is In Due Time. The Apostle Paul founded the Christian church in Philippi, the first place, incidentally, the gospel reached on European soil during the second of his three missionary journeys as related in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. It was there in Philippi, you may recall, that they met Lydia, a seller of purple goods, in whose house this new church actually formed. Philippi is located in what today is northeastern Greece, across the Aegean Sea from Turkey. Paul is believed to have written this letter to the Philippians while imprisoned in Rome during the early 60s A.D. With none of his other churches did Paul seemingly enjoy such a good and close relationship. While many of his other letters to churches evince strained relationships, animosity, and sometimes downright hostility, this letter to the Philippians reveals no such major controversies, but rather a warm and harmonious relationship. This letter, therefore, includes many of the apostles' most famous and inspirational sayings, such as, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And of course, finally, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Just because it was Paul's best and most favorite church, however, does not mean that it was perfect. Does not mean that it was seamless. Does not mean that there weren't kinks to be worked out. You detect a father's concern with unity among his children in the warm admonitions of verses 2 through 4. Make my joy complete, he pleads. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind, in a fourfold repetition, suggesting that if there were indeed one problem the small congregation were facing, it was division and perhaps petty squabbling. Nothing specific is mentioned in the letter until the end, chapter 4 and verse 2 and following, where Paul writes, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche, specifically naming two people in the church, to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
Scholars then assume that not only are these two women in sharp contention, but that very likely they are heading up two opposing camps within the church. Paul then asks for others to help them get along, confesses that both of them have labored faithfully alongside him, and declares that everyone in this situation has their names recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. It is an effective pastoral reminder for this tiny church that whatever disputes serve to divide them, their common mission in the gospel far supersedes such concerns. Paul gives the only solution he can think of to such a situation. Back here in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but rather to the interests of others. If unity is the goal, then, Paul seems to be saying, the method of achieving it is humility. There exist few problems in the realm of human relationships that can't go a long way towards being resolved by an increase of love and an increase of humility. This particular problem and its particular solution are widespread enough among the earliest Christians that Paul's advice here is echoed throughout his many other letters. He implores the Romans, for instance, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And the Corinthians, let no one seek his own good, but rather the good of his neighbor. All such sayings, of course, derive from Jesus' second great commandment, second only to loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, namely, love thy neighbor as thyself. And asking for unity, which can only be achieved here through humility, I say, good luck. Such occurrences are rare and precious indeed, possessing an almost supernatural quality about them, which far exceeds our natural human capacities. Paul knows we only have one hope, and that lies in what follows. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Prior to the time of Christ, you see, people were left to their own willpower, their own efforts, their own volition. Today's first lesson from the prophet Ezekiel effectively relays God's cries and desires through his various prophets. Repent, Ezekiel says, and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Get yourselves a new heart. Get yourselves a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord thy God. So turn and live. That's great advice, we all acknowledge. But how do we go about getting ourselves a new heart? And a new spirit. Is there some spiritual Walmart we can go to and get it on the cheap without too much sacrifice? How exactly under one's own power does one go about turning and living? Thank God we live on the other side of Jesus Christ, knowing all that he has come and achieved and accomplished for us on our behalf. Forgiveness, reconciliation, salvation, restoration, redemption, life eternal, life more abundant, and transformation. We know that that last one, transformation, is unfortunately not instantaneous, but rather it is gradual and incremental. We are obviously all works in progress. Among other things, then, Christ set the example. 
That is why Paul can say here, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what that mind was follows next in verses 6 through 11. In one of the oldest and most famous, not only of New Testament scriptures, but also of liturgical pieces of music. You see, verses 6 through 11 are different from everything around them. They may even be differently spaced and set off from their surrounding verses in your own Bibles. They are poetry in the midst of prose. They are a hymn, actually, in the midst of someone lecturing. They are melodic and inspirational in the midst of mundane advice. Verses 6 through 11 are known famously as the Christ hymn and are regarded by most who have studied Scripture and its history as the lyrics to a hymn about Christ placed in the middle of the point that Paul is trying to make. It is effective, I think, most of us would agree. It would be like a preacher explaining to you the definition and the significance of the concept of grace. And then suddenly saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Hymns and songs resonate more powerfully in the human spirit oftentimes than even the artful words of a preacher as gifted as Paul. So this hymn sung by the earliest believers, the earliest church, conveys the most basic and the most fundamental truth about the path, the journey, and the trajectory of Jesus, whom we call Christ. Verses 6 through 8 concern his humiliation. Verses 9 through 11 concern his exaltation. He went down, in other words, before he could come up. He was brought low before he could be raised high. He gave up and gave away everything before all things would be restored to him. You see there in verse 6 that he was in the form of God originally. But that did not mean that he remained in that glorious state, but rather he emptied himself. And what that entailed was willingly taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. He humbled himself. He became obedient, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So in essence, he was eternal and preexistent with God. But for our sakes, he decided not to remain in such a holy, glorious, and transcendent state. But rather, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate, born in a stable, laid in a manger, grew up to be a carpenter, was baptized and tempted, became a teacher, a preacher, an exorcist, and a healer, was rejected, persecuted, arrested, convicted, put to death in a grisly, gruesome fashion, and was buried as a pauper in a tomb he could not afford. In some way, somehow, that's how God decided to redeem his entire creation. What an awful ending it would be to conclude the story of a failed Messiah there in verse 8. But the story does not end with suffering and death. It never does. We know that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and that he ascended to heaven on the 40th day after that. And that's why Paul continues here in verse 9 that God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should be loosed to confess that first and earliest of Christian creeds, that earliest statement of Christian belief, namely that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
It is that time-honored, uncomfortable juxtaposition of death and life, of death and rebirth, of humility and exaltation, of emptying out and then being restored. The problem is you and I don't like the first. We only like the second. We avoid the first and we embrace the second. We do not have joy unless we are entirely inhabiting the second part of that equation. But the pattern of God is that those two things are inextricably linked. They are intertwined to such a degree that they cannot be teased apart. Not only is this what happened to Christ, but it is what happens to us as well in ways both great and small every day. Not only was this the mindset of Christ, but it is our mindset as Christian believers as well. The Apostle Peter, in the first letter bearing his name in the New Testament, echoes this same pattern as it concerns our daily living when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you. In that particular formulation, do you know what the bridge is between humility and exaltation? The bridge between being brought low and raised up high? Between emptying yourself out totally of everything and being restored, vindicated, and justified? What is the bridge between those two things? Three words. In due time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you. You know what in due time means, my friends? It means the time is due. It is owed. It's coming. It will happen. Nothing can stop it. It is on the way. Christ died, in other words, but in due time, specifically three days later, He rose. He rose, and in due time, specifically 40 days after that, He ascended into heaven. And after taking his seat at the right hand of God the Father in due time, ten days later, he poured out the Holy Spirit upon his original believers and followers. Do you know why you have the particular birthday that you have? Because in God's eyes, it was due time. Do you know why you have your gender, your gender identity, your complexion, your name, your ancestry and heritage, your unique fingerprints and the exact number of hairs on your head? Because it was all due time. Do you know why you were baptized when you were, received first communion when you did, were married and or gave birth when you did? Because it was due time. Do you know why you experienced pain, isolation, suffering, rejection, persecution in your life? Unfortunately, according to the pattern of this text, it was due time. Even death itself, in whatever form it may take, has a due time. It just doesn't have the final word. It doesn't have the final say. New life is coming in due time. Rebirth is coming in due time. Your vindication is coming in due time. Your exaltation is coming in due time. Your reward is coming in due time. Hope 
is coming in due time. A new dawn is coming in new time. A new day in your life is coming in due time. Happiness is on the way in due time. Joy is coming in due time. Deliverance is coming in due time. Relief and respite are on the way. They are coming in due time. Restoration is coming in due time. So you hang in there. Don't you give up. And don't you give out. Whatever storm you are in this day, however dark it may be in your life right now, the sun will shine again. It is coming. It's on the way. Nothing can stop it and nothing can thwart it. And do you know when it will arrive? Do you know when your victory and happiness and joy and peace and love, do you know when all of that will arrive? You tell me. I can't hear you. And one more time for the Holy Ghost. Verse 12 says you are working all this stuff out right now in your own life in fear and in trembling. But verse 13 reminds us that actually it is God who is at work in you. And because it is God who is at work in you, he will achieve his goodwill for you. For your blessing and your well-being, for your sanity, for your health, for your healing, for your wholeness, for your peace, for your patience. And he will do it all in due time. Look at your neighbor and say, in due time. In due time, indeed. Amen. Because of your generous gifts,